Thank you, team. Good morning, church. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. And we have much to be thankful for indeed. It's been a wonderful few weeks to be with you, to get to know you, uh, to meet many of you. Uh, and, and as I understand, it's a good thing we began our football practices this week because I, I don't know, many of you may be coming back tonight and I've been warned I might need a pair of shoulder pads and helmet. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I look forward to seeing many of you again this evening uh, and, and getting to answer any questions you may have. Uh, maybe hearing from you or are you getting to hear from me uh, one more time as we gather together. Over the last few weeks, we have been studying from the book of John. We began a sermon series in the book of John a few weeks ago, and this is week number three in that series. And as we have been studying the book of John, we've been studying the book in light of the purpose for why John actually wrote. And so we want to just review that purpose again this morning. We'll do this a few more times as we go through the book so that it's really ingrained in our hearts and our minds. Why is John writing his gospel? It's very important. John's writing for this reason. Again, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, one of the realities that we're going to look at this morning, one of the, 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 the certainties that we're going to find is that without the reality of the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and coming as a man, we would have no way to believe and have life. In his name. And so together in week one, we explored the magnificence of Jesus as the word. And, and we came together again last week in week two, and we examined many of the different ways that the world responds to the person of Jesus. And so this week, we want to investigate why did Jesus take on flesh and come to us as a man. And so our goal today is this. From our text this morning, we want to consider six reasons why Jesus took on flesh and came to us as a man. Six reasons Jesus took on flesh and came to us as a man. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know as we open your word this morning that your spirit is already actively at work among us. Father, we know that you've already gone before us as you always go before us. And now we pray as we open your word that you would guide our minds, that you would align our hearts and you would direct our thinking so that it may be exactly in line with what your word would have for us this morning. That we may leave here uh, as changed people desiring to make a difference in our communities. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be in the book of John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to John chapter 1 with me, I'm going to read the entire text this morning and then we'll break it down together as a body. This is John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son 
from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In the reality of the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and coming to dwell among us is one of the core and central teachings in all of Christianity. And it is one that we should rejoice in and that should cause us to be extremely thankful as we consider the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so the first reason we want to consider this morning that Jesus took on flesh is Jesus took on flesh so that he might dwell among us. If you look at verse 14, it says right at the beginning in verse, uh, in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this idea of God dwelling among his people, this wouldn't have been new to the Israelites. This wasn't a new concept to them or something that was foreign to them. In fact, it had been a reality that God was with them previously in the wilderness. If we go all the way back to the book of Exodus in chapter 40, it says, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken out. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel, throughout all of their journeys." And so very early on, one of the realities that we learn about God is that our God is a God who throughout history has demonstrated that he desires to be with his people. And indeed, the incarnation teaches us that. God with us. God with us. We, we witness this reality uh, moving one step closer in Jesus coming, taking on flesh, and coming to us as a man. And it's important we understand that this is a literal man that we're talking about. Jesus was literally, a, when he came to earth, literally physically, as, as you and I are man and woman, woman and have flesh, Jesus had flesh and he lived among us for 33 years. He was like us in all ways, yet without sin without sin. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 to 18 says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so this passage affirms for us that we have a Messiah who's acquainted uniquely with our experiences. With, with all the realities in life that we walk through, we are tempted. And as we are tempted, he too was tempted. Sometimes in our lives, we feel betrayed. And, and as we've been betrayed from time to time, Jesus experienced betrayal as well. Last week, we looked at the reality of, of the feelings of rejection that, that sometimes people have towards Jesus. And sometimes in our lives, we feel like we've been rejected turned off. Jesus is acquainted with those feelings of rejection. Sometimes we feel tired. I know this week, there were many nights this week when I came home and I felt tired. I just wanted to crash on the couch. And, And Jesus, at times in his ministry, he felt tired. Anyone in here ever hunger? You ever hungry before? Hopefully none of you get get real upset when you get hungry. I tend to get a little upset and impatient when I get hungry. I don't think Jesus did that. But you know, Jesus hungered. There were times when he, when he hungered for food. He was in the flesh as we are, as we walk, he walked. As we relate to other people, Jesus related to other people while he was on earth. Yet the incredible reality of his presence is he was able to do it without sin. Without sin. Jesus dwelt among his people. A glory began to show forth that people recognized a glory that could only be attributed to God himself. And so the second half of verse 14 reveals to us a second reason to consider. Jesus took on flesh so that he might reveal the glory of God to us. This is what it says in the second half of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, and he radiates the glory of God. Listen to how Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says it. This is... uh, In the book of Hebrews, it says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the complete, uh, radiant revelation and reflection of the glory of God. If we want to see the glory of God, and we talk about that a lot in the church, seeing God's glory or glorifying God, if we want to see his glory, we must get to know Jesus. If we want to live in a way that glorifies God, and we, and we do talk about that as well sometimes in the church, living in a way that pleases God. If, if we want to live in a manner that pleases God, we must live for Jesus. By taking on flesh, 
and coming to dwell among his people, ultimately Jesus shows that from beginning to end, from alpha to omega, that we serve a God who keeps his covenant promises. And we can walk this all the way back to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. And as the nation of Israel was formed, as God formed them into a people, and they began to journey as a group and as a nation of people, they didn't always follow after God. They, they didn't always run after him. In fact, more often than not, they chased after other gods. They desired other kings. They longed to be like other nations. Yet God still kept bringing them back to himself. God still continued to keep and fulfill his covenant promises to them. And when we see the term and the phrase in verse 14, grace and truth, we should be taken back to this reality that God fulfills his promises with grace and truth. In dealing with people at every intersection in history, God deals perfectly with humanity in grace and truth. The glory of God is amplified and put on full display in the person of Jesus who proclaims to the world by his very presence that God is trustworthy. God is faithful. God is going to keep his promises to us and that God is with us. God is with us. This is the reality. The reality is that we serve a covenant-keeping God who is always faithful to fulfill his promises to us. And one of the ways he's been faithful is by sending his son in the flesh to dwell among us. The truth of this reality is followed in the next portion of our text. It's in verses 15 and 16. Jesus took on flesh so that we might realize through observing his fullness that we have grace upon grace to live victoriously. Now look how John proclaims this. It says this in, in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now what we find here in this portion of John chapter 1 is that we have corporate testimony, right? So we have the gospel writer John and we have John the Baptist coming together and recognizing the importance of the physical presence of Jesus on earth. And John wanted, John the Baptist wanted the people to know that even though his ministry began before Jesus. Now remember, John the Baptist, he was about six months older than Jesus. And so when he started his ministry, he started his ministry about six months before Jesus. And the times back then, what would happen is the person who started their ministry before would be given priority to the person who came after. But what John wants his people, his followers to recognize, what John wants us to recognize is that even though in terms of physical presence that Jesus came after John, Jesus was eternal. And by his eternal existence, he had priority above John. He was greater 
than John. It wouldn't be the fullness of John the Baptist's work or witness that would deliver grace upon grace to the people. But it was the fullness of Jesus that allows us to receive grace upon grace. Now what does that phrase mean? What a wonderful phrase for us today, by the way, church. If there's any phrase in the Bible that should give us great hope, the reality that we have grace upon grace in Jesus is a powerful one. It's grace upon grace to overcome the challenges that God brings into our lives. He he brings them with the intention of our good, to bring himself glory, but then he also extends the grace to us that we may walk through them and be a light that directs others to his grace. Grace upon grace. in, In our minds, in this season of life that my wife and I have been in, One portion of scripture, and I think I shared this before a few weeks ago, that has been very close to our heart, has been Lamentations chapter 3. It's been very close to my heart and my mind, verses 22 to 26. And it's connected very closely with this idea of grace upon grace. Listen to what it says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. And I love this verse right here. This is grace upon grace. If the Lord is our portion, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. The orientation of our lives, the compass that directs us when we walk through difficult seasons is that the Lord is our portion. Difficult Journeys in our lives, financial stress, marital strife, discord at work, losing a job, getting an alarming report from a doctor, perhaps our children walking away from the Lord, discouraging journeys of life that we walk through from time to time, pathways where there's grief and there's sorrow. Is the Lord our portion in those days? Grace upon grace says this. Grace upon grace says, I will give you everything you need to walk through this. And I am faithful to work all of this together for, my good, for, for your good and my glory. Grace upon grace says, your circumstances, what you're experiencing now, good or bad, is temporary. What I have waiting for you in eternity is far more precious far more wonderful than any temporary joy, pain, or discomfort I may allow you to experience here on earth. Grace upon grace says that my joy, our joy, cannot be touched by our enemies. They can't can't be quenched by them. And our treasures lie not here on earth where they can be stolen or plundered, but in heaven where moth and rust cannot decay. Grace upon grace realizes that our responses and reactions to the difficult circumstances that we face on earth might be the very thing that God uses to draw another person unto himself. Grace upon grace shows us how different it is for us now that we're living under 
the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And, and John's going to move forward to, to reflect a little bit more on this truth in this passage as he's going to show the difference between Moses representing the law and Jesus representing grace and truth. And that leads us to our fourth reason to consider why Jesus took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh so that we might see that life lived by grace and truth is far better than life lived under the law. And this is what it says in verse 17. If you have your Bibles and want to look back down in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says this. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Now, the law gets a bad rap. And I'm, I'm going to stand up here and, and, and tell you, I think it, when we look at the Bible, when we look at the Word of God, sometimes we look at the law and we think, oh, that, that, that was, it was a terrible thing. But there were some good things about the law, and, and there were some insufficient things about the law. And so we want to look at these together this morning. Some of the, the good realities about the law were this. The law revealed something of the nature and character of God to his people. And so there was something in the law that taught us about God. What, what God valued was written into the law. What God loved was written into the law. What God hated and disapproved of was written into the law. And so the law in some ways revealed to us truth about God. The law also was able to uncover our own sinfulness and our own failures. It showed us that uh, a means of forgiveness existed, right? We had the sacrificial system that became part of the law, and there was a way to atone for our sins that was built into the law. It describes how God desires to be worshipped, and, and it provided clarity for the leaders of Israel as they led the nation. There were some good things about the law there were also some very insufficient realities concerning the law. And I won't say bad because, again, I don't want anything that God gave his people to appear to be bad. And, and so that's why I said sometimes the law gets a bad rap. The law wasn't bad. The law was good. But it was insufficient. It could not give life. Jesus does that by the power of his Holy Spirit. It was unable to wholly and completely declare men righteous before God. Jesus both declares us just and righteous before God. It was not a permanent solution. Jesus was, once for all, a permanent sacrifice. It declared men guilty. Jesus declares us free. It brought condemnation unto men. Jesus gives us victory. And so there were some good things about the law and some insufficient things about the law. But the law was largely what guided the thinking of the people in that day. So you had these men, these religious leaders, they were the Pharisees, and oh, they were terrified of Jesus, by the way. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, they desperately feared Jesus. Everything that was comfortable to them, he, he was breaking apart. He was shaking their foundations. He was rousing them from their complacency. He was challenging their long-held interpretations of the law. And every time they tried to trick him and get him caught in a bind, he would outwit them. 
they were frustrated, incredibly frustrated. They would come to Jesus and they would say, well, what would you say about this, Jesus? What would you do? And he would say, well, you have heard it said, da-da-da-da-da. But I say, never gave them what they wanted. Never. In this, Jesus was showing that he hadn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But the, the, the Pharisees, they mistook him. They thought that he was coming to abolish the law, but he wasn't. He was coming to fulfill the law. Look at what he says himself in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Through his teaching, Jesus was showing how different the application of the law would look under the new covenant of grace. And the Pharisees couldn't handle it. It was not comfortable to them. It was a teaching that ultimately they would deem as heresy. And ultimately it was the reason, one of the big reasons, why they would seek to have Jesus crucified and hung from the cross. He was upsetting their comfortable establishment of life by law and showing a better way a new way, a way of life by grace. And we should also want to live this way before our friends and neighbors, right? And, and, and a question maybe we should ask ourselves is do we long to show our friends and our neighbors that don't know Jesus that there is a better way, a way guided by grace and truth? Now, I have to pause here and say we live in a country that is experiencing the devastating effects of walking away from an objective and absolute moral standard, grounding in a covenant-keeping and faithful, unconditionally loving God. And, and, and we're leaving this, and we're walking away from this in favor of a wishy-washy, ever-changing, politically correct, subjective morality that's leaving its its effects visible everywhere. Brokenness, hostility, abundant fear, anger, bitterness, social, racial tensions. The new standard is no longer, it is no longer the word of God. The standard of morality is no longer God's word, but it seems like today the standard is fairness and equality. But who gets to define that when there's no objective moral standard by which to test it? And so today, friends, many of our neighbors, many of our friends, maybe even our family members, are living under the condemnation of the law of man. It's the condemnation of the law of man and not the grace and truth that Jesus so openly proclaimed and provided when he was here on earth. It's the law of political correctness. And I think many of you will find, many of you observe, and many of you would agree that this is a law that is not motivated and guided by love, but it's, it's a law that's oftentimes motivated and guided by selfishness and fear. Oh, fear is so apparent in our culture. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And we come to find that fairness and equality is, inadequ is it's an inadequate moral standard. And in the end, 
I believe it will only leave our nation more divided because when we choose to accept and believe a false narrative that proclaims that we know and we understand fairness and equality better than God, it's a dangerous, dangerous place for our nation to be. A dangerous place. In today's law, the law of man, guided by fairness and equality, grace is missing. Grace is absent. And some elements of the truth remain. Thankfully, God has preserved them. But largely, we see condemnation. We see shame. We see guilt hiding behind every decision that we make. I mean, think about it today. Every action that we, that we do can be recorded. Somebody could film every action, every word we say, and put it on any number of social media sites for the world to view where entire populations of people await, ready to strike, guided by sick and broken moral compasses because we've walked away from the absolute truth of God's infallible word. Oh, how our world needs to experience the power and the hope and the love of Jesus in grace and truth. Friends, Many of you in this room, in your lifetime, have witnessed this seismic shift in our culture. You have seen it. And, and, and you wonder, where, what is our encouragement in, in this world of chaos that we live and fear? How can we be encouraged? And I'm so thankful that Jesus gives it to us. It's in Matthew 5. You know, the word of God is always the safest place to go. And Jesus' answer for our hope, for our encouragement, for the church Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You might have to write that one in your note, guys. I don't know if it's in there on the supporting scripture side. It says this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. We just went to a bluegrass concert last night and sang this little light of mine. How exciting. But on a stand, it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And when they see your good works, what will it produce? Glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is our encouragement. This is our hope to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live with great thankfulness and great hope in the fog of relativity that pervades our culture today. And this is one way that Jesus uses our lives to make the Father known to others. Do not fear, friends. Do not fear. There is no need for fear. There's no cause for fear for us who sit in this room today. Take hope. We serve and follow Jesus. We know he is victorious. And we know this because despite the current climate that we live in, he's still actively at work through his spirit, making the Father known so that those caught in hopelessness might come to have great hope in him. And this leads us to the final reason that presents our, itself in our text today. Reason number five. Jesus took on flesh in order to make known the Father. It says this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
in spite of our circumstances of the day, we do not live as those who do not have hope. We live with great hope. We should live with great hope. We should grasp hold of the Messiah who is making the Father known. It says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I have a friend who says to me often, uh, when I walk through difficult seasons of my life, and many of you sit here today, and maybe you are in a difficult season right now. Um, and, and I don't know your turmoil, and I don't know your stress, but I do know that it's out there. And you may be sitting here today in that stress and in that turmoil. When I walk through these difficult times, I have a friend in my life that continues to encourage me with this sentence. He'll say to me, he'll say, Chris, he'll say, you never know how Jesus might be using you right now in your current circumstance and situation to draw somebody to himself. And you think about that. How our lives can be a witness. Last week's message we said, may your life be a light. And man, can Jesus use us in situations where we walk through difficult seasons. Man, can he use our responses. Can he use our reactions to draw people into real relationship with himself. Paul admonishes the Philippian church about this. This is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. And and this portion of scripture is aptly titled, Lights in the World. It says this. Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I love what he says next, because see, at that point, if you stop, you think that you're doing all, you have to do all this work, right? If we stop there, we think, man, we really got to work hard. We got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But look, at he continues, it's just a comma, it's not a period, for it is God who works in you. It's God doing it. It's God who works in you uh, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what does that look like? What does that look like? This is verses 14 to 18 right there. It looks like this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Friends, this is how Jesus builds his church. We want to see how Jesus builds his church. Jesus chooses to use you. He chooses to use me. And he chooses to use the way that he's working in us and through us as we go through difficult seasons of life to draw other people to himself and into his church. He's using our responses. He's using our actions. He's using our life. It's Jesus working in us to make the Father known. Jesus took on flesh for us in order that we might observe him 
and see how to live in the face of great adversity, great hostility, and great animosity. Jesus came into a culture and into a world and to a people who he knew would despise and reject him, yet he still came. Yet he still came. And, And there's one final reason. Today, I believe we would be remiss if we overlooked. Because I know it's not directly in this passage in John 1, 14 to 18, but we know it's an obvious application of why Jesus took on flesh and came to earth as a man. Reason number six to consider is this. Jesus took on flesh in order to die in our place. He took the death that we deserved. It's one of the reasons that he took on flesh to dwell among us. John 6, 51, Jesus is talking about this. And by the way, if you ever want to see a place in the Bible where people were really enraged with Jesus' teaching, John 6 is a place to go. Man, people were angry. Many disciples walked away after, after he taught this. They couldn't handle it. He said this, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It wasn't a spirit that hung on the cross. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't an apparition. It was the physical body of Jesus that took our death and took our punishment on the cross. And so ultimately we come to find that in the incarnation, in Jesus coming to earth as a man, in the, in the act, in the event, there's an incredible action of love motivated by a God who loves us unconditionally. Jesus coming to earth, beginning in love and ending with an ultimate act of love. Also that we might believe and have life in his name. So we often, I often, you'll find if, if things continue to move forward with our time together here, you'll find that I end a lot of our messages with this question. It's, it's the question I believe is really important for us. How should our lives look in light of these realities? And let me just ask you to consider something with me. When a father makes a great sacrifice for his family, When a father acts in such a loving way, when a father lays down his own life for his children, what would be a reasonable response? Thankfulness. Great thankfulness. And and it's that great thankfulness that must be the overwhelming characteristic of our life. This was an act of love. 1 John 4, 9, in in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so today, folks, our lives should be characterized by this thankfulness, by this love that we have for a God who displayed his love for us in such a significant way and sacrificial way. As our team comes this morning, they're going to to play a song and and lead us in a song that we can reflect on. I have in your notes some questions 
that you might have time to reflect on as they play this song. And one of the questions is this. How can my life better reflect the great thankfulness I have for what Jesus has done for me? How can it better reflect the great thankfulness that I have? Second question, what are the sources of joy that Jesus has given me in this life right now? And third, and and I would hope that you would prayerfully during this time of reflection, consider some names of people that, that God has brought into your life because there's nobody in your life by accident. It's a truth that I firmly believe in. Every person in your life, God, has there for a purpose and for a reason. And so the question is this, who are the people that Jesus has placed in my life that need to see the great thankfulness and joy I have for what he's accomplished for me? Consider those things as our team leads us. Amen. Would you stand for our benediction? As you go today, might you go with the understanding that Jesus could be using your very life, the actions of your life, the responses, your attitude in those circumstances this week to help reveal the Father to someone. Let your life be a light. Let your great thankfulness be an example. And let your great hope be a source of joy. Go in peace and no fear. Jesus has declared you righteous and made you victorious. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.